1: is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. <laughs> so yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time, and for a long while yet, it
0: is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hello and welcome to Clean Up on Aisle 45. I'm your host Allison Gill. With me is Andrew Torres. Hey
1: Allison. So uh, we we recorded 75 minutes of a delightful show. Uh, and then uh, late in the evening on Monday, as we were sort of bantering and and uh, you know getting ready to say goodbye, the news crossed both of our desks. Crossed your desk first. You had the the scoop on it that um, Politico has received a copy of the draft opinion in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, which is the Supreme Court abortion case, and so. By the time you hear this episode, uh, it will be all over social media that uh, this is an Alito opinion, Alito draft majority opinion uh, that uh, explicitly overrules uh, Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey holds that uh, there is no constitutional right to an abortion um and we thought, since we record the show early, that uh, we would at least get, give you a couple of minutes of an instant reaction.
0: Yeah, and so. according to Politico, I, I have no idea how Gerstein and Ward at Politico got a hold of this, because this is the first time court watchers can remember a draft opinion being leaked before a decision.
1: It, 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 this never happens. Never, ever, ever, ever. And I can tell you, as somebody who's uh, had friends who are Supreme Court clerks, um, that they take that very, very seriously, that this is uh, this 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 is not um, uh, it's not a hoax. It's not uh, this is very clearly Alito's draft opinion circulated to the justices. Uh, My complete spitballing, uh, because we have nothing else to go by but than spitballs right now would be. Uh, Clarence and Ginny Thomas leaked this as part of their yay we're conservative activists uh, because they clearly value uh, that more so than, um, you know, norms like the rule of law Um, that that I got I have zero evidence for that. Well, you know, I have I have the Ginny Thomas sending out, you know we need Donald Trump to declare martial law in connection with the one, six insurrections. So, you know, reasonable suspicion, but, but no evidence. Um, So my
0: very, very top line understanding is that this just takes it away. It just overturns Roe and leaves it up to the individual States, whether or not they want to ban abortion.
1: So yes. And can I just, this is not against you you personally, (laughs) Um, but I want to stop that rhetoric, right? Like, Republicans have been using the like, let's leave it up to the states. You, you know what's left up to the states? Things that are not rights. Right. So w- w- when we say we leave it up to the states, that's like, you know, can can you drive 65 on the highways? Right. Can can you have a sales tax on cabbage? Right. Uh, if something is a fundamental right. The definition of something being a fundamental right is that you do not leave it up to the states. I'm sorry. No, no, no. I I
0: totally agree with you. I'm just saying what will happen. (laughs) I'm just saying what will happen. Yeah. Uh, So four key passages uh, that I'll just read. Uh, We hold that Roe and Casey must be overruled. The Constitution makes no reference to abortion and no such right is implicitly protected by any constitutional provision. That's Alito. Another passage. Roe was egregiously wrong from the start. Its reasoning was exceptionally weak, and the the decision has had damaging consequences. And far from bringing about a national settlement of the abortion issue, Roe and Casey have inflamed debate and deepened division. It is time to heed the Constitution and return the issue of abortion to the people's elected representatives." Another passage, the inescapable conclusion is that a right to an abortion is not deeply rooted in the nation's history and (laughs) tradition. What? Sorry. Try that again. It's hard to read. The inescapable conclusion is that a right to an abortion is not deeply rooted in the nation's history and and traditions. Uh, On the contrary, an unbroken tradition of prohibition of abortion on pain of criminal punishment persisted from the earliest days of the common law until 1973.
1: So... Section A1 discusses the question of what a right is. And Alito, and if this is to be the majority opinion, uh, is engaged in a radical rewriting of our nation's history. It will now be centered around a jurisprudence of stupid uh, of the sort that. Lawyers have been gently correcting right-wing activists who have said idiotic things like, well, it doesn't say abortion in the Constitution, so right which, you know, yeah, doesn't say a lot of things in the Constitution because the Constitution lays out general principles, which it's then up for courts to decide how to apply those general principles in terms of governing everyday life. That is about to end. When I'm about to read to you, from Section A1, is r- just rhetoric. It, it cites almost no cases. Um, and, and here's Alito's language. The Constitution makes no express reference to a right to obtain an abortion, and therefore those who claim that it protects such a right must show that the right is somehow implicit in the constitutional text. That is not and has never been the test for understanding what is a right in the Constitution. and Alito cites to zero cases in support of that sentence. Instead, he continues. Roe, however, was remarkably loose in its treatment of the constitutional text. It held that the abortion right, which is not mentioned in the Constitution, is part of a right to privacy, which is also not mentioned, and then it quotes Roe, and that privacy right, Roe observed, had been found to spring from no fewer than five different constitutional provisions, the first, fourth, fifth, ninth, and 14th Amendments, and then cites again to Roe. One of the things that i have tried to sound the alarm against in the right wing's jurisprudence on basic individual rights is the erosion of the right to privacy which does not mean what we think of as you know hey uh, i'm gonna shut the door and like mom can't come in the room right i want to be private um the supreme court's jurisprudence on the right to privacy dating back to the early 1960s is a jurisprudence that is grounded in the implicit Liberty inherent in the constitution to engage in the most personal and basic life decisions that are key to an individual life in a, in a free society. Those are decisions about whom to marry decisions about Uh, how and when to engage in personal relationships, sexual intercourse, whether to use birth control. And it is very true that none of these things are mentioned in the Constitution. If this is to be the test, there is absolutely no foundational basis for thinking that the Constitution protects a right to marriage of any sort, let alone gay marriage, that the Constitution protects a right to contraception of any sort, that the Constitution protects the right to marry someone of a different race—that is, Loving versus Virginia. Each and every one of those cases, right, are contingent upon the right to privacy that Samuel Alito has just drugged through the mud uh, in his discussion of how stupid Roe is. And if you think that the same right wing that came for abortion, is not coming for gay marriage contraception and yes, interracial marriage. If they get there, then you haven't been paying attention. This is what's on the chopping block. And this is a huge first domino to fall, but this is, um, on the one hand I knew it was coming on the other hand, it is, it is terrifying and, and heart wrenching to read.
0: Yes. Yes, it is. All right. Um, I'm sorry. No, I don't know why you're sorry. Um, Uh, I'm going to need some time to process this, Uh, and um, I'm assuming there's going to be marches. Uh, um, I don't know when the announcement will be. I don't know if the court's going to respond to the fact that they let slip one of their decision drafts, which still blows my mind. But we'll see. We'll see what happens. Uh, we just wanted to come on and tell you uh, really briefly about this about this news before we got into the rest of the show. The rest of the show will be going over the decision uh, on the 1-6 committee's uh, battle in the courts with the RNC and Salesforce, their email vendor, and we're also going to do a little comings and goings. So um, that is what is coming up as soon as we say goodbye here. But again, um, Andrew and I saw this news come up and made the decision to um, – to record a few minutes about it uh, by now. Uh, I'm sure when the show drops, you will have heard.
1: Yeah, it's the show the shows a happier show. So we, we kind of felt like we need, we needed to explain why we're yucking it up um, and, and deal with this with, you know, some of the, the, the gravity that it, that it deserves. So um, yeah, because the show
0: you're about to hear it was pre Alito's draft yeah. being leaked. Um, yeah so uh, that's that's all that's why we're here and uh, we will see you next week and of course we're going to go over this on our individual shows on opening arguments we're going to talk about it on the beans Um, so stay uh, stay tuned for that as well thank you very much and on with the show we recorded uh, just not an hour ago so yeah now it's clean up on aisle 45 time and for a long while yet it is going to be clean up on aisle 45 Hello and welcome to Clean Up on Isle 45. It's Wednesday, May the 4th be with you. <laughs> and this is episode number 68 of, of, of this podcast. I'm your co-host, Allison Gill. With me, as always, is Andrew Torres. Hi, Andrew.
1: Hi, how you doing?
0: I- I'm doing well, I'm doing well. Uh, we've got some big news in court filings today that didn't seem <laughs> to hit very hard on the mainstream media. I hope you enjoyed my summary.
1: I did, very much so.
0: Thank you. So we're going to be going over that. Uh, But first, we need to give a shout out to our new patrons. Post Nut Clarify, obligatory (laughs) firm offer joke, Jill Winston, Christina Van Ralt, or Ralti, and my dog ate my Patreon name. Excellent. And if you'd like to join the team, head on over to patreon.com slash aisle 45 pod. Sign up for as little as a buck an episode.
1: Yeah. And since it's the end of the month, we also give a shout out to our Hall of Famers. These are the ones who support us at the sponsor tier. And, you know, I don't want to say that we love some people more than others, but we definitely love them the most. So (laughs) big thank you to Tucker Carlson's Bromeopathy. No ducks given this month. That is at Atomic Penguin 7 on Twitter. Mike Hudson, not a namer of dragons. Medicon 7, Lance Buckley, January 20th, baby. Greg Kreimer, dude. David in Brooklyn, that period. I, I figure it's actually Mr. T's middle name signing up for us. But, <laughs> <laughs> Patty B, Mitchell, Charles Jones, the delightful Jessica Outbeer, Jameel R. Chohan, Chris Waltrip, Mitchell, and our all-time great, Chris Simpson.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much. And everybody, don't forget, on Friday, May 13th, 3 p.m. Pacific, uh, that makes it 6 p.m. Eastern, we will be having Mm -hmm. a little Zoom call for our patrons. So head on over again, patreon.com slash aisle45pod to sign up. We would love to see you there.
1: Yeah, and if you're a patron at any level, you can uh, join, have fun with us. It's a
0: lot of fun. Any, any level. And ask us questions. Add infinitum. Well, or
1: or just make statements. That's also
0: Yes. Oh actually just for just an hour. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> I like I like how you have to clarify for our listeners, ad infinitum means one hour. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that, yeah, that's 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 literally the totally the translation, I'm sure. No, it's not. And now on with the show. All right, so first up, the RNC and Rana Romney McDaniel versus Pelosi and the rest. Um, <laughs> and uh, this is, I, I wrote up a little, this is a, a long filing, right? This is what, oh, yeah. so like 50, 60, 50, 60 pages, something like that. Uh, and it's a, a ruling on the arguments that the RNC presented as to why all of the stuff from Salesforce, their email vendor, shouldn't be handed over to the January 6th committee. And uh, we have a filing summary, right? We uh, I, I went through and I, I kind of broke it down, put it together in in as basic terms as I could, and um, that's what we want to tell you about today. Is this filing? It's uh, this ruling. It's pretty. Uh, it's it's intense.
1: Yeah. It 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 and it continues with the theme of boy the one six committee has an awful lot of information from an awful lot of sources. Mm. Um, one one more thing that I want to point out, right? This is, so this lawsuit was filed in the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia to block subpoenas, right? So RNC filed it against Nancy Pelosi and the House and the 1-6 committee and, uh, you know, probably her puppies and, you know, everybody they could find, right? It got assigned uh, to Judge Timothy J. Kelly. A Trump appointee. And we told you on this show and on my show, right, I have practiced in front of Judge Kelly. I I know that he's a Trump appointee. I know that he is conservative. He was nothing but fair in my case. He is a a competent, qualified Trump judge. And like that's there's a difference, right? Like that, that there was certainly you know uh for most of the trump presidency he was appointing you know justins and Corys and 27 year old federalist society members with zero legal experience that's not what we have here right we have somebody we told you from the outset right this is not the fixes in this is not somebody who uh is is gonna put their thumb on the scale for uh you know nepotism and idiocy, and uh, with that in mind, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, oh, you want, well, shall shall we talk about uh, you know kind of what this uh, what this opinion does, and uh, where do you want to start?
0: Yeah, well, let's go over what it says. Let, let's just okay. uh, kind of give a, a brief overview here, and we can yeah. talk about why the decisions were made they the way they were made uh, after that. But the committee. Uh, the one six committee subpoenaed Salesforce and asked them for data showing how their emails performed between mm-hmm. election day and January sixth. Like how many people opened, how many people clicked through, how many people donated—that kind of stuff. They wanted to know who worked on those emails, composing them, uh, and who worked on them at the RNC, who uh, worked uh, on them. Who, you know, who did they have discussions with about writing and and crafting these emails, and who might have more information about these emails. They wanted to know reports. They wanted to see reports and analyses from Salesforce that they conducted about the rallies on 1-5 and 1-6 and internal communications related to those reports. And they wanted to see communications between Salesforce and the RNC and the Trump campaign. Any communications in general. Now, the judge yeah. kicks it oh, off, right? At,
1: at, uh, I, I want to just jump in for a second and yeah. say, um, on page 5, for example, they... They quote from one of these emails. And just so you understand, as a listener, the role that Salesforce is is filling here, these are fundraising emails. These are the emails that your Aunt Kathy gets that's like, if you don't give $50 to the RNC now, Joe Biden will unleash, you know, an army of pedophile Cerberus again. right? Like, it's so actual, actual email cited in the actual subpoena. We have the capital truth. Capital today will be a historic day in our nation's history. Every single patriot from across the country must step up. Capital right. Capital now. If we're going to successfully capital defend, you can see who this is aimed at. The integrity of this election. President Trump is calling on you to bolster our official Defend America fund. Okay. So, yeah, Trump and the RNC were fundraising off of the big lie that the election was stolen and that was in connection with orchestrating and designing and trying to get people to show up at the Capitol on 1-6. So I I, I just wanted to be clear because like we've talked about, you know, how Eastman's emails were, you know, stored on his Chapman University server. This is not ju- they're not just subpoenaing Salesforce because that's where the emails are, although that's part of it, but also because Salesforce profited, right? They were paid to come up with this bullshit to get people riled up to think that the election was stolen and show up on 1-6. Anyway, sorry. No,
0: <laughs> and we already know that there is a grand jury in the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C., the Department of Justice, that's investigating the same thing that Sidney Powell did with her super PAC and whether or yep. not she defrauded uh, inve- uh, investors or donors uh, when she was using the big lie to raise money for her defense, the Kraken team. So, you know, this is kind of along those same lines. But you know, like did did Salesforce write these emails? Did the RNC tell them what to say? Did Trump campaign tell them what to say? How did these come about? We need internal communications, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Exactly right.
0: So now the judge says, uh all of that's cool. You can have all that, except some privileged reports and analyses about the rallies on one five and one six. And and which are uh, possibly legit covered by attorney-client privilege, work product privilege, you know, just certain privileges, right? Uh, but th- that's a very small f- component of what uh, what the committee is looking for in their subpoena.
1: Yeah, and and procedurally, I think it's important to 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 note that sort of what happened here, right? Which was the subpoena went out from the one six committee to Salesforce, <laughs> and Salesforce is like. Uh, we make money off you grifters. We we don't we don't have a dog in this fight. Um we're 100% going to do everything Congress asks us to do because you know why? Like we're we're just a business and that's what people do when we're not, you know, criminally corrupt. Yeah. So, and they have said
0: <laughs> we're a little concerned that some of the emails <laughs> yeah. we sent out might have stoked violence on the Capitol. Yeah.
1: Yeah, they, they we're they used to, that. you know, The standard political bullshit, but you know, maybe you know, this went too far. So the RNC went into court to sue to block Salesforce from complying with the subpoena, right? And that's why this is really significant. And they raised six different arguments, (laughs) which uh, I know you are prepared to uh, dissect at length. But the arguments are number one, it violates their free speech, First Amendment rights. Number two, that it violates the Fourth Amendment. That was that was a fun one. Number three, the argument, and again, this has a lower winning percentage, a worse batting average than the Krakens, right? That the subpoena does not advance a valid legislative purpose. They've been trying to hit that one out of the infield since, you know, Trump's only term in office, uh, you know, in arguing that, uh, you know, every... Every congressional investigation into Trump's crimes ever was not a valid legislative purpose. And guess what? That argument is o for the courts.
0: Yeah, and it is a zero. It, now it's just a sad bunt that yeah. that, that <laughs> flies off the bat and hits them in their own ballsack. That's all. It's they can't get it. Not only can they not get it out of the infield.
1: Uh, it, that is that is the the best uh, running with that analogy.
0: Thank you, <laughs> thank you. I figured I'd take it to I that love level. It. And uh, Uh, I want to ask you real quick here, because it's going to come into play that there are two parties in this suit. There's Salesforce, Mm -hmm. and there's the House 1-6 Committee. And from my understanding of this, uh, you can't get to the merits of an argument if you don't have jurisdictional standing. And so what the 1-6 Committee argues is They have no standing in their lawsuit because of the speech or debate clause. You can't sue Congress, and so this whole thing should go away. But what the judge says is, well, we got to look at the two separate parties. Can they be split up? Can uh, the the case against Salesforce exist on its own, Uh, et cetera? And they've determined... Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what the judge determined uh, in a little bit, because we do actually get to hear the merits, but not because RNC can sue the 1-6 committee. Right. So we do get to hear some of the merits of those arguments and they're, they're fun. Yeah, it, it is.
1: I I, I want to break what you just said into a, a, a couple of different components, right? Because you are exactly correct. Um, I, I want to emphasize raising jurisdictional procedural standing issues, right? It is not, there's nothing inherently wrong about doing that on, on either side, right? Like, it is a perfectly valid way to tell the court, hey, before you evaluate the substance of this dispute, let us know, right? Like, we think there is a legitimate argument that says this is not a thing that you should decide, Right. And what makes something not a thing that you should decide? Um, a, a, a bunch of things. Um, but but generally, they fall into three kinds of buckets, right? The first is when there is the absence of an actual case or controversy, right? And this is sometimes uh, colloquially described as uh, the the requirement for standing that says, you know there must be an an actual live controversy between the parties because the court does not issue advisory opinions,
0: right? Yeah, and we've seen that in other yeah. <laughs> filings. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Where they we wanted the court <laughs> to decide something that hadn't happened yet, and the court's like, yeah. I don't fucking do that, and they're like, okay. Right.
1: Yeah, exactly. Right. So that's a that's a big question on standing. And notice that right there's there's a lot of gray area, right? Like when somebody says. I'm about to punch you, right? Can, can you go to court and say, look, like they said, they were about to punch me, or do, do you have to wait for them to actually punch you? And, you know, shocker, when someone says, I'm about to punch you, uh-huh. you can go to court and get a judicial determination that if they punch you, that would be a bad thing, right? Um, and that's, you know, that's typically false. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, uh, oversimplifying a lot here, but that's typically what we think of as declaratory judgment actions, Right okay, the injury hasn't occurred yet, but it's imminent. It's going to happen, so I do have standing. So, all right, this is not a question about standing. The the second category of of issues uh, comes up when uh, there is not a justiciable remedy for the thing that you're seeking, right? And this is a more complicated issue of standing, but again, it rests on the idea that your state courts are courts of general jurisdiction, right? If if I if 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 any if if person A has a problem with person B, they can always go to a state court and file a lawsuit. Now, the the court may throw it out, may say that that doesn't amount to a cognizable harm, but the court won't say I can't hear your problem. Right? The court will say, okay, I can hear your problem. Right? So I frown at Allison on our Zoom here. Uh, she decides to sue me. She runs out to. Uh, you know, a a district court, uh, a trial court in, let's say, California, where she lives, uh, and sues me. I can't go in and argue lack of standing. I can argue frowning at somebody on Zoom doesn't amount to a cognizable harm. But I can say, you know, that the court gets to adjudicate, right, whether my frowning caused harm to Allison. So, Because federal courts are not courts of general jurisdiction. They're courts of limited jurisdiction. Sometimes there are things that feel like they ought to have a remedy. (laughs) But the law says, sorry, that's just not justiciable. Right. And we've talked about that before. And the third category are areas where there are specifically delineated immunities. Right. And that's what that's what we have here. Right. Which is uh, on the floor of the Senate, on the floor of the House. Uh, The speech and debate clause uh, broadly immunizes Congress, members of Congress for any activity that they undertake uh, in connection with uh, the the act of governing the United States. And so the idea that you could sue a committee for issuing a subpoena (laughs) is something that Judge Kelly was like, right, that's silly. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, but but okay, go ahead, sorry.
0: Well, I was going to say, but just in case, the House lawyer said, first of all, speech or debate clause bars the, R- the RNC lawsuit, right? Right. But just in case, here's our arguments on the merits. And I'm going to yep. put merits in quotes. <laughs> uh, air quotes there. So that they say, just in case, for some reason, uh, because we are only one party in this lawsuit. If you have to decide on the merits, here's why the RNC claims fall short on the merits. So the, the, the one six committee did argue why the first amendment was not violated, why the fourth amendment was not violated, why they have a legislative purpose, how their rules are set up. They, they made, they went ahead and made all those arguments in their filing, uh, just in case, uh, their first, you know, reason to dismiss because of the speech or debate clause didn't pass all the tests.
1: Yeah, that's right. And again, arguing in the alternative is is what lawyers do, right? So there's there's, there's nothing. I I just want to be clear because <laughs> they lost, and we're going to take great pleasure <laughs> at at how the RNC multiply lost. But but there's no. But I I want to steel bot the other side a little bit and say there's nothing. Just like there's nothing wrong with you know the the. Uh, The House one six committee moving on the grounds that um, that there was a lack of standing. There's there's nothing wrong with the RNC briefing up kind of, you know, both the standing question and the merits question. Right. To 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 be prepared to kind of fall back. And there's nothing wrong with the judge's opinion, which is basically like, yeah, I'm going to kick everything out on standing against the one six committee. To the extent that leaves ambiguity, I'm also going to rule on the merits. So, (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm. and the court did find (laughs) that the RNC has subject matter jurisdiction over the uh, RNC's claims against Salesforce. Right. Because the RNC would suffer an injury. That injury is traceable to Salesforce, Mm -hmm. and the injury would be redressed if the RNC wins the decision. But if the House is an indispensable party, and the action couldn't proceed against Salesforce alone. The entire thing has to be dismissed, and the RNC would need to establish Salesforce as a state actor to proceed on the merits. And according to the judge, we, he, the judge is like, the court's just gonna assume that, yeah. and go forward with your merits arguments. Um, and uh, but, but but before we get to that, they they do. The judge does dismiss wholly, the RNC's claims against the House under the speech or debate clause. Right, and, and,
1: and, and I'm not sure that that matters, right? Like, it, it, you, you often see this in litigation, right? Like, at the end of the day, what the RNC wants is to block Salesforce from turning over those emails, right? And so losing procedurally on maintaining claims against the 1-6 committee... Is it is a paper loss, right? Like it doesn't that doesn't potentially uh, deprive them of the remedy that they seek. Now, the rest of the opinion deprives them <laughs> of the remedy that they seek. But, you know, I would do this all the time, right? Like it, it, it where um, you might sue one party. Um, I'm trying to think of a real world example where this happened. Well, well, uh, uh, this has happened over. The production, I've had to file a lawsuit where a party wants to produce certain cell phone records, right? And many cell phone companies have a policy that says, if you issue a subpoena pursuant to a valid lawsuit, we will turn over those records. If you don't have an existing lawsuit, we're not going to turn them over voluntarily, right? Like, that's... Their dividing line on respecting their clients versus complying with the law. So sometimes you will say, you know, you will bring a lawsuit where the purpose is to have a lawsuit open in order to produce those AT&T records or, you know, whatever the cell phone, cell phone provider is. And you don't really care <laughs> about the claims against the other side. I, I've also had uh, insurance lawsuits, right? Where, you anticipate, right? You begin uh, as a claimant against the insurance company and all the other co-claimants, right? In connection with, you know, a big, um, a big uh, pollution spill, right? And you would say, we're going to sue everybody that was involved in this, you know, mass uh, uh, public health hazard. We expect that the parties will realign, right? That the interests of those who were covered by insurance uh, will all wind, migrate their way over to the plaintiff side of the v, um, and that happens all the time. So mm-hmm. you know, so parties can be um, you know can be fungible in uh, in lawsuits. So
0: got it. Now the RNC did argue um, against using the speech or debate clause to dismiss this case. They argued speech or debate doesn't apply because they said there's no legitimate legislative purpose. And the judge said that fails, because Salesforce and the Select Committee narrowed the scope to very specific things. And the RNC also argued the subpoena is overbroad, but again, the House's (laughs) scope is narrow, and the speech or debate clause prohibits the court from parsing the demands so finely. And they, they cite the case law for that. The RNC also argued the subpoena is politically motivated, and the court says, I don't give a shit. Uh, that's possible, (laughs) but the court can't examine motives when evaluating whether the speech or debate clause applies. And you should know that if you fucking went to any law school. Also the RNC that I'm paraphrasing also the RNC, but only lightly. (laughs) And then the RNC says the court can't rule on the speech or debate clause until it addresses the merits of the congressional authorization claim. And apparently the RNC doesn't understand the order of judicial operations. Um, he said that the judge says this has intuitive appeal. It feels like a great <laughs> argument, but precedent <laughs> forecloses it. I
1: I really as a, as a lawyer when I read that one like that that felt like the bless your heart of uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> it was like cool. I I because if I were if I had had gotten if I'd been on the opposite side of that ruling I would be like. Oh well, that hurts. <laughs> like, you're you're saying I, I get why you know an idiot might think this, but but you know if you had done your job and read the cases, you would you would know that that's not the 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 case. I, wow, that um, that
0: was good. But the court yeah. makes the right call. They say, look, I'm not going to yeah. look at the merits on the on the house side of the issue on the speech or debate clause. That is outright dismissed. And one of your things is mood anyway. So. What I am going to look at on the merits is the sales force side, because there could be injury. It's traceable to sales force and that the injury would be redressed if the yeah. RNC won. So the, the court's like, and it didn't quite get this and maybe you can explain it to me, but the judge is like, all right, look, I'm going to just assume that the house is not an indispensable party and that Salesforce is, quote-unquote, a state actor, so we could proceed to the merits. But he didn't really explain how Salesforce is a state actor or why the parties are not indispensable.
1: Yeah, I, I, think, that's, I think that's correct in reading it. And again, it doesn't surprise me, right? Because if you're thinking about, right, as a, as a trial court judge, Appeals? You're always. Yeah, you're, you're always <laughs> your question is going to be, what is the appellate court going to do with my opinion? And by writing it this way. Right. Uh, Judge Addressing Kelly has
0: these merits, even if you might not have to. Yeah. It prevents it being kicked back down to his court to make those merits decisions.
1: Well, Judge Kelly has given the appellate court a couple of different outs to say. So, for example, suppose he gets, he, he doesn't, as far as I can tell, uh, but suppose the appellate court is convinced that he's gotten the law wrong on one of these six main issues that we talk, that we're going to talk about later on, right? Like, an appellate court now could look at this and go, yeah we're not we're not sure that we buy the first amendment analysis of the of the district court's opinion but that error was harmless because the district court passed lightly over this standing issue and we find as the appellate court because you review, although you review the facts uh, for to determine whether they're clearly erroneous, you review conclusions of law de novo, right? So you, the, the appellate court could very easily say, yeah, no, we, we find that as a matter of law, the 1-6 committee is an indispensable party and therefore there's no jurisdiction over this entire thing. So therefore that constitutes harmless error and we're going to deny your appeal.
0: Right? Gotcha, gotcha. If but, you do it then, the other way around. Yeah, but then, yeah. now you have that on your plate in yeah. case they... Uh, agree that they're not indispensable or that you know that, that that they do have to be decided on the merits and so then they've got the whole merits argument laid out for them if that's the way they want to make if they need that to decide the on the appeal
1: that's exactly right
0: okay that's cool covering your bases yep. got it for a trump appointed judge not bad uh, all right. So <laughs> let's get uh, into um, just a couple of things here. The court reminds everyone of the legal standards. The court says they have to dismiss an action if it lacks subject matter jurisdiction. They must. And they must grant summary judgment if there's no genuine dispute as to any material fact. And if the movement, which is the House at this point, is entitled to a judgment as a matter of law. So they just wanted to remind right. everybody of that. And then they get into that analysis we went over about the RNC arguing the speech and debate clause and the subpoena and, and why none of that works. And then we get into the um, the merits of the case. The at f- merits. At yeah. First, the court must presume the House has a legitimate legislative purpose, and the House doesn't need to declare in advance what they might do when they're done. So you know, with the if the RNC, which they did ask, is like. Well, what's their purpose? And it's like they don't know yet. They might not know yet, and I, I can't tell you. And it, I don't. I the court can't determine that anyway, because then you're weaving into, you know, separation of power stuff. Second, uh, yeah, I th-
1: I think that's right. And and I, I should add that the the court uh kind of analyzes these in a slightly different order. So they start on page thirty, and it, it might be worth us uh, kind of hitting that first with, <laughs> with the argument that we have seen. Eastman made it a bunch of these morons have made this argument that the, the select committee is not even a real committee. What is it? It's not properly authorized because, you know, the the handpicked trolls that Kevin McCarthy wanted to serve on the committee aren't serving on the committee. So therefore, it's not a real thing.
0: Right. And the uh-huh. court says, hey, I can't tell the House of Representatives what its own rules require. <laughs> Because that yeah. would be violating the rulemaking clause in article one of the constitution. I can't yeah. go against the constitution. Sorry.
1: Yep. Yep. No, that's exactly right. And that is based on the technical, because ar- <laughs> to be honest, the argument that the committee shall have 13 members <laughs> is, is, a slightly stronger one than the one that says it must also have the trolls that, you know, Kevin McCarthy wanted to appoint on it. Um, and and the court has to parse those a, a, a little separately, right? Like because there there is, you know, to to borrow Judge Kelly's words, some intuitive appeal to the idea that you know the enabling legislation says shall have thirteen members. Uh, what are you doing with only eleven members, right? Well, the answer is y- you guys sent us morons that are not appropriate. We sent them back and said try again, and and Kevin McCarthy said I'm going to take my ball and go home. Mm-hmm. And so And the right,
0: court said they can't rule on the House rules, right? That's
1: exactly right. That's that that's the separation of powers issue. With respect to the consultation requirement, right? The the court said, yeah, no look, all we can do is evaluate whether Pelosi talked to McCarthy. And the record shows that she did. <laughs> that's what consult means. So uh, you know, so get out of here with this.
0: Yeah, yeah, and the court also says um, that the House can seek info that might have an indirect bearing on the subject <laughs> that they're looking at because investigations branch off and go in different directions. Yep, and
1: and, and that's... Oh, sorry, I'm sorry. Oh,
0: yeah, I point. was just saying, that's a very important point here. Like, even if I could tell the House what rules it should and shouldn't have and if they followed them, they their investigative power is very broad. And, and yep. so they can't really, you know, it's like you, you can't, I, the court can't parse this stuff for you. Sorry. Yeah.
1: And this begins on page 33. This is where we're bleeding over into the second argument of, uh, is this okay. We've now said, all right, the one six committee is a valid committee. Does it have a valid legislative purpose in issuing the subpoena? Right. And the RNC's arguments are the same grab bag of terrible arguments before Like this is politically motivated. This is ad hoc law enforcement. You know, you're not really trying to pass legislation. And and again, the court, I think, does a very nice job here of saying, yeah, um, it's not the job of the court to try and second guess what the legislature would do. Um, it's not this, even the
0: legislature's job right. to decide what it would do at the end of an investigation that's not done yeah, because
1: this is how legislation gets made. Right. Like <laughs> you say there was a problem. I mean, ideally, this is how legislation gets made. You say there was a problem. Right. What's the problem? Armed insurrectionists came to the Capitol, breached the Capitol, stormed onto the floor of the Senate and disrupted one of the most important functions of the Senate. Okay. So what do we want to do? We want to find out how the hell that happened to make sure that never fucking happens again. Right. And 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 the idea, right? Like, I don't know how you could go into oral argument with that as the backstop and 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 make an argument. Right. Like if a judge were to look at me and say, Mr. Torres, are you honestly contending that there is no valid legislative purpose Unless you specifically define in advance what you want the law to be before you've gathered the information necessary to determine whether that law is necessary. Is that what you're arguing before this court, Mr. Torres? I would have to say we withdraw the point. Never mind. Never mind. Yeah, Yeah, of course. Never mind.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And and also what the judge says here is that the subpoena uh, in order to be invalid would have to be solely for a prohibited purpose. Under the law, right. right? And which this is not.
1: Yeah. That's the I can hate you for two reasons argument. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Got it. All right. So with all that in mind, here's what the court finds on the merits with regards to the RNC's six arguments. Their argument okay. that it violates the First Amendment. The court says the subpoena does not violate the First Amendment. <laughs> That it violates, the, and we'll go over these a little bit if you want to talk about them, but if the, the idea that it violates the Fourth Amendment, the court says the subpoena does not violate the Fourth Amendment. <laughs> uh, well, the subpoena, it has no legislative purpose. The court says the subpoena has a valid legislative purpose. And then they, the, the RNC says, no, but the committee doesn't have congressional authorization to issue a subpoena. The court says the committee is properly authorized. But yeah, but the subpoena is excessively broad. No, the subpoena is not overly broad or un, unduly burdensome. Sorry. And finally, the subpoena violates the Stored Communications Act. And this one's fun. The court says the Stored Communications Act claim is moot because the House confirmed it's not seeking communications covered by the Stored Communications Act. (laughs) So, moot.
1: Yeah, um, so, (laughs) correct summary on all of it? Um the the I wanna I wanna back up because yeah, the the Stored Communications Act, the the way in which uh the one six committee avoided this argument was by telling Salesforce, hey, don't give us anything that violates the Stored Communications Act. <laughs> um and Salesforce confirmed to the court, okay, we're not gonna do that. And so there, there's nothing else to do to do there at that point right that is classic negotiations and discovery and let me give you and this is this is a direct analogy that in fact comes up in uh, my cases all the time if i am subpoenaing records from a doctor's office for example it the one of the very first thing the doctor's office will say is i'm not going to give you records that violate hipaa right if it would violate any patient's right to confidentiality in the maintenance of their records, unless you have a waiver from that patient, I'm not going to give you the record. And I'll have a waiver for the patient that relates to the particular litigation. And then they'll say, but you know, sometimes other patients' information winds up in a patient's file for, you know, whatever reason, right? And when we say for whatever reason, I don't I don't want to say usually, I want to say in my case, it, it came up because of mandatory reporting for sexually transmitted diseases, right? And what I was able to tell the doctor's office was, yeah, fine. We don't want the other patient's stuff. We want the patient's stuff for which we have the waiver. And they said, okay. And their answers would say, we are producing all the documents that are responsive, that are within our possession, custody, or control that do not violate uh, the HIPAA Act of 1990, whatever.
0: Yeah, just redact what they can't hand over.
1: Yep exactly right um, still working backwards the overly broad and duly burden and some that is that's just th- those are boilerplate objections right and it you, but
0: it's just so dumb because the the <laughs> <laughs> i think in an amended supplemental briefing the house got together with Salesforce and said okay we don't want any of your donor information we don't want any of this we just specifically want this we specifically want that they narrowed the scope of everything they wanted and then you know put that in there and said this is all we want because the right wing you know, talking head machine and the <laughs> anger mangle, which is the Ingram mangle, uh, went on to nice. they want all of the voter information and emails and your blood type and your DNA and the and <laughs> the, 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 the fucking committee's like, nah, dude, we don't want any of that. Here's exactly what we want, and okay. this is it. These are the four corners of what we want. Thank you very much. And so they, I, I guess they're just they just. Didn't want to take out that argument in case, I don't know, may hail Mary. I,
1: you know, you, you, you always want to give the judge sort of every available out. So, you know, again, I, I don't, I don't fault the way this was that, that these, these particular arguments were litigated in the alternative. I'm just saying they're not good arguments. The fourth amendment argument was weird to me. <laughs> Tell us about it. Tell us about it. Yeah. So. Right. You have the, you have a Fourth Amendment right uh, against self-incrimination. Right. And that was the gravamen of what the RNC was arguing, was saying because this is so overbroad and exceeds any lawfully authorized purpose, it effectively constitutes an unreasonable search and seizure. Right. It, it, it means that you were doing so without. Uh, probable cause without adequate uh, justification for undertaking the search in the first place. And if you're sitting there thinking that seems to be a kind of a, you know, round peg, square hole kind of thing, you'd be 100 percent correct, right? Like there there are almost no federal cases that um, have applied the Fourth Amendment in this way. And in what the opinion calls one of the few federal cases on point, um, it went the other way, right? So it was a a case called McFaul. Um, and in that case, the House committee issued uh, a subpoena to the executive secretary of the Civil Rights Congress. Um, and that subpoena demanded production of all records correspondence memoranda pertaining to the organization of the affiliation with other organizations. They met communists, right? And all monies received or expended by the Civil Rights Congress. And the Civil Rights Congress was like well, this seems like a fishing expedition designed to, you know, tar us as communists. So uh, we think it is, quote, so broad as to constitute an unreasonable search and seizure in violation of the Fourth Amendment. Um, They lost at the Supreme Court, right? The Supreme Court was like, yeah, this is a close call. This is a broad subpoena. But um, the permissible scope of materials that could reasonably be sought was necessarily equally broad and so it was not so broad as to violate the fourth amendment and here judge kelly says so too here <laughs>
0: um, just like that
1: yeah and that's really what it means it is it is saying yeah, you know um it, not not my place to <laughs> to to say for the first time in american history that a congressional subpoena is so obviously broad on its face as to constitute a violation of the fourth amendment, yeah. I'm not going to be the first person to carve that one out. No. And you know, that's, asking, that's above my pay grade.
0: They're asking for a lot because you commit a lot of crimes. Um, right. <laughs> so, maybe, maybe your insurrections shouldn't be overly broad. Yep. Then.
1: Um, and notice also, you know, I've, I've uh, defended, if not praised the argument and the alternative, I will tell you it is bad. like, Good argument in the alternative is where there are completely disparate universes of fact that can justify each of those arguments, right? Um, and the best way to, to to figure out what that is is by looking at what this isn't, right? So notice that, like, their Fourth Amendment claim requires you to be sort of on board with both the idea that it's super broad, which the court's not on board with, and the idea that it lacks a legitimate legislative purpose, which the court is not on board with. So it winds up really not being much of an argument in the alternative, uh, because once the court says this has a valid legislative purpose and it's not super broad, those, you know, pre pre existing assumptions are now called into question. So
0: makes sense. Yeah. So um, also. OK, so the conclusion here for 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 all these reasons. The judge said, (laughs) the court will dismiss all the claims against House defendants, dismiss as moot that Stored Communications Act claim against Salesforce, (laughs) enter judgment against the RNC on the rest of its claims against Salesforce, and enter an administrative injunction to give the RNC time to seek an injunction pending appeal. And the reason that the court did that is because all of this shit was due May 2nd, which is when this ruling came down. I didn't leave a lot of time for the RNC to appeal. So the court said, you know what, we'll give you a couple of days. We'll give you till May 5th. <laughs> to, right. right. To, yeah. uh, Tomorrow. <laughs> to file your to file your appeal. And I'm sure they will. Yep. I'm sure they will. Uh, and uh, it, so the, the my questions become uh first of all i want to ask about the the appeal and the timeline of that appeal i'm assuming if i were the house i would probably file for an amended expedited schedule uh for deciding uh based on the timeliness the importance and you know the fact that the congress has an expiration date which they've argued in other filings too like hey this is we're the time is of the essence uh here the court uh but well, you know i want to talk about that but my first question is my my instant thought went to all of the other lawsuits out there right now from recalcitrant Republican witnesses, saying mm-hmm. that the committee is illegitimate. They can't have my phone records. They can't have my subpoenas. I'm suing you, uh, etc. And and all of their arguments about the legitimacy uh, of of the of of the panel. But I think we've already had some court decisions, multiple, in fact, that say that there is a legitimate legislative purpose and that the committee is. A... So I don't know if this impacts other cases. Maybe it just adds. Maybe I guess in all those other cases, we might get a supplemental filing from the good guys saying, hey, here's another judge who says that the, the, the committee is legitimate. Uh, but in like the Meadows case, for example. He argues that there's OLC memos that prevent him from having to show up for a subpoena. So I don't know that this covers that necessarily. Uh, But what are your thoughts on how this decision, because it is a big one, how does this impact other lawsuits that are out there open and pending right now?
1: That is a fantastic question, and I'm going to parse it into a couple of different components. The first is you asked one of the favorite questions of civ pro-law geeks like me everywhere, (laughs) which is a question about race judicata and collateral estoppel. We are already 45 minutes into the show, so I cannot begin to explain that other than to say that one court's ruling on on a particular issue of fact is not always binding against another party contesting that same issue of fact in order to be binding it has to meet various criteria and one of the criteria for res judicata is that the parties have to be the same or in privity right collateral estoppel is broader um but 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 this is an area that says what we want is we don't want to we want to we want to make this balance we don't want to permit a party or somebody related to a party To take multiple bites at the same apple, right? Once you argue in court, there's no valid legislative subpoena and you get a final decision on the merits. We don't want you to be able to go to court and make that same stupid ass argument again, right? We saw this with the Kraken team, right? Like they raised the same dumb argument in the same dumb proceedings over and over and over and over and over and over and over again.
0: Right. And you'll notice in this ruling, a lot of the case citations are the Mazar's case.
1: Yep. Yep. Because, because that's similar. So, and that, and that, that gets into it. So, so the first prong is we don't want you as an individual party to be able to litigate one question over and over and over again. We want the court's ruling to be final. On the other hand, we don't want to stick somebody with an adverse ruling in a case that they weren't a part of. Right. Because they might look at it and go, yeah, they lost in that case because the lawyer representing the other side was Alina Haba. And like, you know, she can barely count to 12. Right. Like it. it, I would have argued it differently. So the way in which you strike that balance is. I think that that I, I don't know that any of these decisions are going to uh, collaterally stop any of the parties from continuing to raise the argument. But as in this ruling, and, and you will see this on appeal, you will see the overwhelming weight, that the overwhelming number of courts that have considered this question, right, have, or the unanim- unanimity of courts considering this question have determined that the subpoena, uh, you know, that, that, that the 1-6 committee in fact has a legitimate legislative purpose. And where that comes into play that's a little different from the Mazars case is remember that um, appealing does not automatically stay the court's judgment, right? You pointed out this court stayed its injunction for four days, right? Uh, Because this came in on a Sunday. Uh, The records were due on Monday and the court, you know, very magnanimously was like, "Ah, all right, you know, RNC, you, you, your lawyers get three days to kind of work this through and figure out if you want to appeal. And we don't want if this goes into effect, then your appeal is kind of mooted, right? <laughs> like, let's be honest with you. So we we want to give you the right to to be able to raise that appeal.
0: But they also but then, have to ask for an injunction, a continued injunction. Uh, they, they that is exactly right. because they can appeal, but the stuff goes over on May fifth unless a court stops it, and so. A court, uh, uh, presumably, wouldn't be able to make a decision on the appeal in a day. So you have to say, and please, emergency administrative injunction. And I, I think they can even ask the Supreme Court, uh, for that. And and I think it's a Scottish judge who gets to decide whether or not that stay happens in this DC is This is the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, this is DDC. So it would go to the D.C. Circuit and then from there to the Supreme Court. This is how things get on the shadow docket, right? Uh, This is the very definition of that. Are you going to grant uh, a stay of, of injunctive relief pending appeal? Now, in the Mazars case, the courts granted that stay all the way up, right? And part of that was based on the idea that you can't put the genie back in the bottle when you're talking about turning records over to Congress. And and this is the second half. There is an interest right as a as a as an individual in maintaining the secrecy of your tax records.
0: Yeah. And in fact, this judge did determine that there, particularly and I should say not with the House, but with the sales force, that there there could be an injury it is traceable and it would be redressed if if they won on their on their claims. Yep. So, I would imagine that the appeals court would gr- gr- grant a stay. So here. So the the
1: the appellate court, right? Again, uh is going to look at at and there are four five fa- are four factors, but but it really the test uh breaks down into the following three uh criteria. The first is is there irreparable injury to the party seeking the stay, right? And 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 my point on distinguishing this from Mazars is just that injury is is somewhat less here, right? Because there was presumed to be an inherent injury in disclosing your taxes, right? Like my taxes are secret; nobody gets to see those, and uh, and, and it and it hurts me if somebody were to take my taxes and leak them out there, right? Here you don't have that same issue, right? Like, there's no nobody is claiming that the Salesforce data has some kind of inherent value in terms of not being disclosed. Now, the rest of it, right? That that I think there is still the strong argument of irreversibility, right? That yeah, once you turn these over to the one six committee, you can't order them to unsee them, right? And that's typically what we think of as as a strong component of irreparable harm the second issue is the likelihood of success on the merits right and uh, again kind of a sliding scale here right the more irreparable the harm you know the less likely you have to be to win on the merits but i could very easily see the dc circuit saying um you, you you got your ass kicked on the yeah, merits. There's no merits here. But <laughs> and, perhaps and, the <laughs>
0: perhaps the injury would outweigh that. I mean, because don't they have to have different they have different weights and stuff. Right?
1: It, 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 it does. Right. That that is that is correct. But th- there is a point below which the court will say, you know, this it, you're going to lose. So we're not <laughs> we're not granting an injunction to, to let you lose. Um, And then the third is sort of the balance of the equities. Right. And again, this gets drawn out into multiple sub factors. But but basically, are we better off waiting uh, and not giving this data to the one six commission or or and 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 running the risk of being wrong? Or are we better off delaying and adjudicating the rights properly? And and here again, what I what I just want to do is I think it is likely that the court will probably uh, at least Stay for uh, through initial briefing at the D.C. Circuit, um, but but there are reasons to think that maybe they won't. Right? That that make this a little bit different than the Mazars case, where you at least had plausible arguments going all the way up. And you can know what they, the Supreme Court does? Yeah. <laughs> can <laughs> they ahead.
0: maybe do an administrative stay, emergency administrative stay, while they decide whether or not they're even going to hear it?
1: They certainly could do
0: because that. for me, it seems like you know with this particular ruling being so thorough i i might say all right we're going to give you a week we're going to take a week to decide if we're even going to hear it and then come back 4 days later and say we're not even hearing this so the lower court ruling stands
1: and 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 let me and let me be clear that is cuz we just migrated without kind of flagging for the listeners that is at the supreme court right the dc circuit has to hear this appeal. okay that that's my they have, question they have an appeal as of right To the D.C. Circuit. But if the D.C. Circuit says, uh, yeah, we're going to take this up and, uh, you know, no, we're not going to enjoin the the district court's ruling pending appeal, then Trump's team, the RNC, will immediately appeal on the Supreme Court shadow docket. Right.
0: So could the House say, hey, uh, we file this motion to oppose uh, an injunction, emergency injunction pending Uh, the appeal at the appellate court level uh, based on the fact that these documents will not be released to the public. uh, They will be released to the committee and they have some sort of presumed right of privacy uh, and maybe make that argument as to why end time is of the essence and and we have a legislative need or whatever. And so that's why you shouldn't grant um, an injunction pending appeal.
1: They will 100% make all of those arguments, yes. right? Because those arguments go to the question of irreparable harm and the question of the balance of the equities. I will tell you, there is a Supreme Court case that basically says, you know, I was alluding to before, once you give something over to Congress, you can't get it back.
0: Mm. Yeah, um, and Congress leaks like a sieve.
1: Right, and, and, it, and it basically says that, right? Mm-hmm. And, and we need to be honest when we are discussing, you know, these issues because- um, you know, that, that's that's the hallmark of our side, at least. So, now,
0: could the Supreme Court, with the Howler Monkey contingent, uh, shadow docket this, uh, run out the clock, say we're not going to hear it until next spring, and then it's a it mood anyway because the Congress is over?
1: 100% they could do that. And, and And the only thing that I would say with respect to that, I guess I would say two things. Number one, this Supreme Court, while it is right-wing interventionist, it does not appear to have what I would call true-believing Trump loyalists on it beyond, obviously, Clarence Thomas, right? And so when an issue has come up that feels like it will only benefit Donald Trump and it does not tie into a larger conservative cause, um, the, the Supreme Court, right? So, for example, right, the executive privilege records the Supreme Court, eight to one, said, "Yep, guess what? Uh, the incumbent president gets to determine an executive privilege. Uh, the archives will turn over those docs. Are they going to embarrass the shit out of Donald Trump? You betcha, right?"
0: Now, what happens um, if uh, they get the appeal goes to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court uh, grants an emergency stay for another couple of weeks and then decides that they aren't going to grant cert?
1: Uh, Then that would dissolve when so the so the terms of the injunction would last until the Supreme Court disposes of the case. And if they say, yeah, we're not going to take this case, uh, then that's it. It's over.
0: Okay, because that's what I think might happen.
1: (laughs) I I, there are a lot there are a large number of possibilities there. But I, I, I think if you were viewing this as ordinary litigation and with, you know. Today's Republican Party, nothing is Mm. Um, the idea that courts would err on the side administratively of allowing a party to seek all of their judicial remedies is a principle that, you know, ordinarily we would all get behind.
0: Yeah. Okay. I got it. All right. Well, we are going to take a quick break (laughs) at the 57-minute. We had a 57-minute A block, ladies and gentlemen. Well, you know. We're going to take a quick break. I promised everybody we would go over it in detail, so we did that.
1: This was a lot of fun.
0: So we'll be right back with some comings and goings and some interesting things happening uh, in that arena right after this break. Stay with us.
1: And welcome back. This is our other cleanup and comings and goings. And I just want to remind everyone it it is May the 4th uh, with with the calendar turning over to May. Uh, the uh, grand jury has now been impaneled in Fulton County. So everything we've been waiting for <laughs> with connection to what, what again to me seemed like very, very obvious crimes. I know we've continued to discuss the, uh, is Donald Trump ever going to be held accountable? And, uh, you know, if you're starting your stopwatches, (laughs) you can click the on button right now. Uh, But that um, that grand jury is is being convened. And I will remain optimistic until I have reasons not to be.
0: (laughs) Yes. And she has said charging decision possibly by the end of the year. And, uh, yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens. But I know they're looking at Rudy Giuliani. They're looking at, uh, at Lindsey Graham and his phone call. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, they're, um, and what I want to know about, BJ Pack, who resigned <laughs> mysteriously. That uh, was
1: such a strange story.
0: As yeah. a U.S. attorney. Uh, then, of course, Raffensperger. Uh, these are all people who said they'll come in and talk, but only with a subpoena. And she couldn't get a subpoena without seating this special grand jury because it's different. Yep. The rules are different in Georgia. And so now she has it. Uh, they got 23 and three alternates. And uh, they've closed down all the streets around the courthouse. And uh, she's got um, some chutzpah. I'm very excited to see what happens with this investigation.
1: I I am, too. I'm crossing my fingers. <laughs>
0: All right, and something uh, something happened in France um, recently. Can you? Uh... <laughs>
1: yeah, way to way to rain on that parade. Um, I, so, if you didn't see this, and we were going to talk about this briefly last week, when you know we went two or three hours, um, far right lunatic and National Rally Party candidate Marine Le Pen got forty one and a half percent of the vote in the second round in the runoff. Uh, In the uh, in the French elections. Yes, uh, Macron was reelected. Yes, the polls were, you know, uh, looking bad at it. But this is a candidate that got crushed two to one, 66 to 34 the last time she ran. So she basically halved that margin. Right. Like uh, that. Tens of millions of people said, yeah, that's that's okay. I'm on board with far right uh, fascist, you know, populism. Um, and, and, you know, there's been a lot of discussion of, you know, sort of did that movement kind of peak with Trump in Europe and Brexit? And was it a, an instant in time? And, and, uh, uh, you know, a lot of people are drawing positive messages out of that to me, that the, the French election is a giant, you know, yellow warning symbol that says, you know, think again if you think that uh, that that fascism has been discredited abroad. So,
0: wow, France gets things late. So, you know, I think they're still into Alf. Uh, so, uh, you know, there go
1: all our French listeners. I'm Bye. just kidding. I was actually no. talking about Germany.
0: Um, so, <laughs> no, because I, when I was there Germans in 1989, love David I, Hasselhoff. I was there in 1989, and I'm like, why is everything David Hasselhoff and Alf right now? <laughs> this is so four years ago. Um. Anyway, uh. Yeah. No. That
1: could shout out to Norm Macdonald who uh, sounds exactly like Thomas Smith.
0: But yeah, no, that fascist creep is real. Uh. And you know, autocracy is easier than democracy. And that's and and the gridlock in Washington. Uh. They're trying to make you fed up with it. Yep. That's the job of fascists is to make you hate the fact that there's gridlock and that it's hard to get anything done in a democracy. Now, I'm not saying don't hate the filibuster. Come on. I'm not (laughs) saying that at all, uh, because that isn't part of what I consider to be democracy. Uh, But if uh, just be be cognizant that they're trying to make you sick and tired and apathetic and throw your hands up in the air and not care anymore. That's the whole point of autocracy.
1: That is exactly right, and that that is the game plan. And, uh, you know, it's why we devote a segment at the end of this show to the nuts and bolts of, uh, the hard work of, uh, you know, moving things along one step at a time. So, uh, I think KJ, you've got a couple of. Uh, comings and goings for us
0: i do our potus has announced his intention to nominate veteran u.s diplomat bridget a brink to serve as the ambassador extraordinary and plenipotentiary to ukraine an extremely crucial and important <laughs> role that hasn't been filled since masha yovanovich was canned in a smear <sighs> campaign by rudy giuliani and the three amigos yeah uh, cindy dyer is the nominee for director of the office to monitor and combat trafficking with the rank of ambassador at large Michael Gonzalez, nominee for ambassador extraordinary and plenipotentiary to the Republic of Zambia, very cool. Uh, Michael Ratney, ambassador to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, another very important post. Uh, Jeffrey Piat, nominee for assistant secretary of state of energy resources, and that's different from the Piat who didn't send the National Guard during the Capitol <laughs> attack. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah,
1: they spell their names differently. Yeah, Piat
0: Piat. Okay. Yeah. And five new U.S. attorneys. Ooh. Rachel (laughs) Crowe, United States Attorney Nominee for Southern District of Illinois. She has served as a state senator for Illinois' 56th district since 2019, so welcome, Rachel Crow. Joshua D. Hurwitt, U.S. Attorney Nominee for District of Idaho. They only have one. Joshua D. Hurwitt has served as an assistant U.S. state attorney in the United States Attorney's Office for the District of Idaho since 2012, so career prosecutor. Mr. Yep. Hurwit was previously an associate at Covington and Burling LLP from 2011 <laughs> to 2012. I don't know anything about Covington Burling. Do you know? Have you ever heard of them?
1: Yeah, no, that was after I left. So, uh, sadly, uh, Mr. Hurwit <laughs> and I did not uh, did not cross paths at uh, Covington and Burlington Coat
0: Factory. <laughs> who else do we have coming on board?
1: Yeah, we have Gerald Carum, who is the uh, U.S. Attorney nominee for the Middle District of Pennsylvania. He is a Uh, criminal defense attorney in private practice in Pennsylvania right now. Uh, Jacqueline Romero. uh, She is a U.S. attorney nominee for the Eastern District of Pennsylvania. And she has been an AUSA in that office for the past 15 years. So since 2006.
0: About time. Yeah, right.
1: And Philip Talbert, uh, who is the U.S. attorney nominee for the Eastern District of California. Mm. And uh, he was appointed uh, by the attorney general as a U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of California since December 2021. So that was a an interim uh, recess appointment and now will come up for a uh, nomination that requires the advice and consent of the Senate to, to take over as a full fledged U.S. attorney with the confirmation of the Senate. So welcome aboard.
0: Welcome to everyone. And, you know, it's it's kind of a bummer that it's taken over a year to get some of these U.S. attorneys seated.
1: Yeah. <laughs> but welcome aboard. And again, you know, it just it, it highlights the point that, you know, you you tied in with the French elections, right? Like we, we know even before they're slip into fascism, right? This is sort of inevitable, right? The Republican strategy has been to complain government doesn't work. And then when they get the levers of power, break them. And it is super easy to make government not work. It is super hard to make it work. And so if you're not grading on a curve, you know, you're not thinking about the strategy the other side is employing.
0: And I would like to send a little welcome out to a guy named Wyndham who comes from, I think, Delaware, who's been brought into the U.S. Attorney's Office to run the second grand jury in charge of the heavy conspiratorial cases and crimes. Uh, of the January 6th attack. And, and of course, the, the stuff leading up to January 6th, he's going to have a whole team of lawyers working on that stuff. And uh, so now we have two uh, grand juries in DC investigating January 6th. One is investigating the boots on the ground stuff and the other is investigating the conspiracies and higher, like the seditious conspiracy, oath keepers and stuff like that, up up to the tippy top. So, welcome to that guy. Uh, may May God speed be with you. Or whatever.
1: <laughs> may God have mercy on your soul. <laughs> and
0: that quite a big job. Anyway, thank you. Uh, thanks to everyone. Thanks to our new patrons. We're gonna see you uh, on uh, the Friday the thirteenth, but we'll see you for I think another episode before then. Uh, and uh, anything else you wanna leave with Andrew? Any other final thoughts?
1: no other than uh thank you again to all of our patrons and everybody that supports the show we we appreciate it we love being able to do this show and uh and thank you all of you who make that possible
0: yes it is because of you that we can do it so thank you and we'll see you next week i've been Allison gill
1: i'm andrew torres
0: this is cleanup on our 45